This is Smarter Cars, and I'm your host, Michelle Kairouz. Today we're talking with Maxime Romain, co-founder and COO of DOT, a French micromobility company operating shared scooters and now e-bikes in Europe. Maxime, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a bit about your background and how you got interested in micromobility? Yeah, so first I'm, I'm French, I'm uh, based in Amsterdam. I had uh, a first career at Decathlon, which is a sports retailer. I was mostly uh, based in Asia, in China, in Thailand, and operating across Southeast Asia, mostly in operations and manufacturing. Then I joined Wayfair, which is an online retailer for home goods, uh, uh, built their operations in Europe and, and then uh, directed their, their business in Europe. So you can say that I'm pretty much an ops guy, so really involved in all sorts of operations. And, you know, by through living in, in multiple Asian and Euro, big uh, European cities, every time it was very obvious to me that there were massive transportation issues. So, you know, you take a city like Bangkok, a huge pollution, you could spend hours in traffic jams, same in China, in Guangzhou, same in London. And so I, I, you know, I got quite interested in the topic of why are not more people using bikes or, or micromobility vehicles in cities. And so in 2018, when I got approached by the CEO and founder of OFO, a Chinese bike sharing company who wanted to expand their bike sharing business across Europe and find a guy to, to build their business in Europe, I got quite interested. I said, wow, that's pretty cool. In China, 20 years ago, there used to be a lot of people using bikes, so then it totally disappeared. And now there are these bike sharing companies that are getting millions of people to, to use bikes again. And so I say, okay, why not? Maybe we could do the same in Europe. Join OFO so very quickly that on one side, there was a lot of demand for bikes. So... You know, we were putting bikes on the streets. I've seen it in cities like Berlin, uh, London, and other cities. Immediately, people were using them. So definitely, people were really keen to use bikes as soon as it was easy for them to use. But in the same time, I could see the major issues of shared micromobility when it's not done right. Uh, if you don't have the right hardware, if you're not monetizing, if you're not collaborating with cities, you immediately create a very big mess. And so after spending a few months at OFO and, and learning about shared micromobility, so I'm very grateful about that, we decided with a few people, including my main partner, Henry, to, to build a European player focused on shared micromobility and which from the beginning would be built applying, I would say, responsible principles. So really aiming for sustainability financially, socially, and obviously environmentally. And that's how DOT was created. And, and since then, uh, we have expanded uh, you know, in uh, six European countries. We are operating 30,000 scooters in these cities. We have won the biggest tender in Europe, which was in Paris. We have won another one in Lyon. And, and we are you know, step by step, not going too fast, but step by step in a discipline growth type of approach, expanding in, in more and more cities, always with our own operations. So sorry, it was maybe a bit of a long introduction, but hopefully no. for people who are listening, it will be, they will understand who we are. Yeah, That's perfect. What are the countries where you're operating? So we are operating right now in Belgium, which was our first country where we started, in France, in Italy, 
in Germany, in Poland, and we are right now starting in the UK as well. And you began with an electric kick scooter, and you recently announced that you'll be introducing some electric bikes as well. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Mm -hmm. But as you look at your footprint with your shared scooter product, are you looking to expand into other countries? Where do you expect to go next? How do, how do you view your expansion? Yeah, I mean, we are very careful about our expansion. So uh, our aim is not necessary to be in 100 cities right away. Our thinking is really to be very careful about the cities that we choose. But when we choose a city, we really invest for the long term. So we set up our own operations. We hire a team. Everyone becomes a shareholder of the company. And what we want is, is really to make a significant impact in every city where we go. Meaning that we want shared micromobility to represent a significant share of all the trips that people are doing. Because if not, basically, we are not making the change that we want for cities. And so we go in a city, we invest, and so far we have started with uh, shared scooters. But that's why we want to add uh, electrical bikes on top of it, because we believe that there are a lot of people, for different reasons, that prefer electrical bikes compared to electrical scooters. Also, it's a better way to do longer distance trips, so let's say uh, above three uh, to five kilometers. And so... We believe that electrical bikes and electrical scooters would be quite uh, complementary. And so in terms of growth, uh, to come back to your question, we want to grow to more cities, but always very carefully. We are very focused on uh, Europe, which we believe is the most interesting uh, market in the world right now for uh, shared micromobility. Uh, and you know there are 200 uh, European cities that are above, I believe, uh, 500,000 people. So there's quite some potential to, to keep growing on there. So you're not interested in the United States at this point? <laughs> at this point, you know, we, we are European, we know uh, Europe, so it's a very big market. So we want to be sure first that we do it very well. Uh, who knows, you know, at some point we, we might uh, go to the US, but uh, right now it's not part of our plans. You mentioned the slower, more careful approach that you're taking to expansion. And also in your introduction, you mentioned wanting to be sustainable from a financial point of view. How has that worked out with respect to the cities you're operating in? Are you able to operate profitably in these cities? Has your slower or more careful expansion resulted in a better financial position for you? Yeah, but if so, you know, at the beginning, we started in one single city, which was Brussels, and then we opened only two more cities, which were Paris and, and Lyon. And the result is first that all these cities are extremely profitable. So, you know, profitable if you include everything, operations, amortizations of electrical scooters. And on top of that, you know, only two cities out of the three have organized a tender, but we have won basically each of them. So it shows that this careful approach enables us to be profitable. It also enables us to show a very responsible model, which the cities liked and, and got us to be selected in the end. And from there, we use all these learnings, obviously, to replicate that and uh, to the other cities. So I would say, yes, I think an interesting question is, you know, can you be uh, environmentally sustainable and also economically profitable and, and a lot of people tend to make a difference or say, well, it's a trade-off, you know, it's one or the other. What we've seen for shared micromobility is that actually a lot of the decisions that make sense from an economical standpoint also make sense from an environmental standpoint. I'll give you a few examples. For instance, if you manage 
to make your, let's say, your shared electrical scooters last longer. Obviously, it means that you can amortize them on a longer period of time, which makes you more profitable and, and increase your return on investment. But in the same time, obviously, it's also great from an environmental standpoint because you create less waste and you can use basically these vehicles and you reduce overall your, your carbon emissions associated to the, to the manufacturing of them per kilometer. So, and a lot of things that make sense here environmentally actually are also quite good financially. And so to give the example of that, our first generation scooters that we launched two years ago are still being operated two years later. And we expect them, you know, to be expect to be operated for third year, maybe a fourth year. And obviously our newer generation are more three to five years and, and longer. And if you compare to the competition, some of them are in the US, you know, the first generation doesn't exist anymore. Often the second generation doesn't exist anymore. And because they did not select the right hardware or, or they did not maintain them as they should. They, they've created in the end a lot of waste and probably a lot of financial losses as well. To be a little bit fair to the early American companies, they were building a minimum viable product that True. proved the category. Yeah. And, and had they, they showed not... the way. We, we would not have started without it, them. I exactly. I <laughs> so, so I think we just have to be a little bit fair that they knew so, it wasn't the most sustainable. And when you're a startup to prove a business model, you have to start somewhere. So you mentioned that when you enter cities in Europe, you really like to make a difference to be in cities where micromobility mm -hmm. trips can matter in the overall transportation ecosystem, which seems very interesting and also very consistent with your idea about also being financially sustainable and profitable. Yeah, yeah. How do you determine which cities those are? How do you know this is going to be a good city for micromobility? Is it infrastructure? Is it density? Like, What are you looking at when you're choosing where to launch? Yeah, so it's a mix of criteria. Obviously, I mean, size of city first is important, right? How many people are living there? The density, uh, is it very spread or is it very dense? The, obviously, the higher the density, the easier it is to operate and to offer a great service where you have a high level of availability of vehicles. The infrastructures are very important. You know, when we do surveys on why people are not using micromobility vehicles, often it's because they fear that it's not safe. And so the quality of the infrastructure has a very big impact on the sense of safety basically for people and therefore the likelihood that they might use micromobility vehicles. Then there's the regulatory aspect. So first, are you allowed to operate in that city? But then if you are allowed, like how many vehicles can you deploy and under what kind of constraints? If it's too restrictive, for instance, you cannot deploy many scooters, then probably it's not going to be a very interesting service for people because you will not be able to offer a high level of availability of the vehicle. So people won't find easily on a daily basis scooters or e-bikes that they can use. So, you know, there, there are other criteria, but I think size of city, density, population, infrastructures, and and the regulation in that city are probably the key criteria that we look at before going into a city. So you announced that you would enter the market with an e-bike. Where are you rolling out the e-bikes? And can you tell us a little bit about the bike, the design, the manufacture of it? Yeah, so that e-bike is a bike that was 100% designed in a house. And the reason is because we could not find an e-bike off the shelf. So 
in market that could fulfill all the functional needs that we had, meaning we wanted something street durable, we wanted something easy to operate, we wanted to offer a great user experience, we wanted something that, you know, where we could ensure that uh, they would always be parked in the right locations. And so as we could not find it, we decided, okay, well, so let's design it ourselves and then before we deploy it in Europe. So DC bike is going to be assembled in Europe and operated in the cities where we are already operating as an addition to our existing e-scooter fleet. Some of the key aspects of this e-bike it's first, it, it's built really to last. So we have really analyzed every potential or possible weakness that, generally speaking, electrical bikes have. So for instance, the chain drive can be a weakness. So we have used a shaft drive, which is completely enclosed, so which basically is uh, almost impossible to, to break and require very little maintenance. We have solid wheels, which the spokes usually are weakness, so they don't have any prime or basically with, with, so we use also a special foam for, for tires, so which means that you have a great cushion, but uh, you don't have a risk of puncture. You have no visible cable, so nobody can try to cut them. And everything has been really thought for, to, for, to, to be durable. We have thought also a lot about also like how do we integrate into cities? And what we realized is that parking or ensuring that e-bikes or e-scooters are correctly parked is key. And so we already had a, what we call a smart parking technology to make sure that vehicles are, are parked in the right location. But what was very important is also very accurate GPS uh, technology. And so as part of this e-bike, we are using in-house developed uh, IoT module, which has a very accurate uh, geolocalization. So basically less than 0.5 or 1 meter, which enables us to ensure that the e-bikes are always parked in the right location. So these are some of the things that uh, we've put in this e-bike. Yeah. But we are very excited yeah, to launch it. And where are you starting the launch for the e-bikes? So two cities, London and Paris. How many bikes will you be deploying in London and in Paris? So in London, we don't know yet because it's a bit complicated. Uh, you have to negotiate right now uh, borough by borough. So it will depend a bit on... We already have agreements from some initial boroughs, but we expect to have more so that can become a truly interesting service for people connecting different boroughs. In Paris, we expect to probably roll out first about, or this year, about 3,000 e-bikes in the city that will come on top of our 5,000 electrical scooters. How do you think about pricing for the e-bike in Europe, especially in a city like Paris? Are you competing with Velib and dock systems that are subsidized by the government? Mm. Yeah, obviously, there is already a great service, which is called Velib in, uh, in Paris. It's one of the, the oldest, you know, bike sharing schemes, dog-based. I think the, the main way to compete is definitely not the price because the price is already quite cheap. So there's no way we can compete against that and, you know, huge subsidies. No, we are, we are competing much more through the availability of our, or better availability of our fleet and also better reliability of our vehicles and maybe also the better experience. What do I mean by that? The Velib, they are constrained by the docks or the stations where they are. And often also these bikes or e-bikes are not available because they are broken, uh, because uh, maybe they are out of battery or, or whatever. And so we believe that through our own in-house operations, which ensure that the e-bikes or the e-scooters are always you know, 98 or 99% available. And 
the higher flexibility in terms of localization of our fleet, we can offer a service where people will find it a lot easier when, let's say, they get out of their home to find an available dot e-bike. And then it will be also easier to park it because they won't be restricted by the the docks being uh, already full or not. For us, it will be, you know, just find a bike parking space. There are tens of thousands of them in Paris right now and park it and that's fine and you are done and you can probably do it 10 meters uh, away from wherever you are going. So in Paris, the government has required electric scooters to be parked in certain locations. Mm. Is that right? And are are there similar parking spots for bikes or are they just existing bike racks that were already there? Or couldn't you put them in the same kind of painted area where a scooter? Yeah. So I think it's going to evolve. But right now you you have about 2,500 parking spots that are dedicated for shared electrical scooters. And through what we call uh, internally our smart parking technology, we ensure that users only end their rides in these parking spots. And, and right now we calculate that we are about 97, 98% success ratio and, and the rest we have our team reposition the, the scooters. For e-bikes, e-bikes, generally speaking, can park everywhere where the bikes can park today which means that you have a lot more parking spots across the city. And I can't remember the, the number for Paris, but it's definitely, uh, let's say, 15, 20,000 parking spots uh, across uh, Paris. So funny enough, it's not going to be the same location for e-bikes and for e-scooters, but this is something we can explain to the user. I think in the long run, in my opinion, at least it doesn't make a ton of sense. So I think eventually the the parking spots for electrical scooters or electrical bikes or bikes should be exactly the same. When you look at entering a market with the e-bikes, is it a different economic analysis or business analysis than with your scooters? Is the bike business Mm -hmm. more profitable or lower cost to operate? Well, I mean, the first thing is we don't know yet because we have not been operating them. But uh, yes, the calculation is different. The the e-bike uh, from a purchasing price standpoint costs a lot more than an electrical scooter. So you, if you want to make it simple, the price of an electrical bike is probably double the price of an electrical scooter. In the same time, because electrical bikes, it, it's basically, an, you assist basically the user pedaling. So the consumption of the battery is much lower if you compare it to an electrical scooter. So what we anticipate is that the initial investment cost is double for the electrical bike, but the operating uh, expenses will be probably significantly lower compared to the electrical scooter. So you put more money at the beginning, but then it becomes more profitable with probably a similar type of pricing structure. So eventually, if you can make your hardware last long enough, the e-bike becomes more profitable than the electrical scooter. And so you're saying you expect that the batteries are charged less often because it's pedal assist. Yeah. So then it depends basically the level of support also that you offer to the users. Yeah. So you have to kind of try to find the right balance. 
When you've been operating in a city with scooters, I know that a lot of the learning that companies have is around where to deploy the scooters, where are they going to be used, where are they being ridden. Does that data help inform deployment of bikes? Bikes are such a different use case, a longer distance, et cetera. Are they deployed in the same locations? How do you manage that operation? I think at, at the beginning, we'll probably use the data that we have, which will be for us uh, the data from the, the electrical scooters. But af after, once we start operating them, obviously, we'll be observing the patterns, which may or may not be different. And then uh, accordingly, we are going to, to optimize availability for both the electrical bikes and the electrical scooters. Well, what's quite possible is that if you take a city like Paris, you know, right now we operate mostly with what's called Paris intramuros, so within the, the ring, basically, of the city or Paris center, if you like. And so now we are negotiating to operate also across all the suburbs, the suburban cities of, of Paris. And so what we anticipate is that the electrical bikes are going to be a lot more used to connect uh, the suburb and uh, the center of Paris whereas the electrical scooter will remain a more uh, local user. After uh, how it's going to exactly play out, uh, I think only the, the experience will, uh, will tell, right? And are you envisioning using separate teams to run bikes or scooters? Like how much does it complicate operations in a city when you move from just scooters to scooters and bikes or other form factors? I mean, overall, we are going to leverage the same infrastructures and same operations. After, you know, it's more tactical. At the beginning, we might actually specialize a bit the teams between e-bikes and e-scooters, but it's more because we'll be learning and for us, it will be easier potentially on the streets to distinguish basically the two operations. But eventually, it should be exactly the same, right? So if you want to rationalize your operations, you want the same person swapping, let's say, the battery for an e-scooter to do the same work for for an electrical bike. So, you know, I think we will, we will look at as to as much synergies as possible between the, the two vehicles operations-wise. What are the biggest pain points in terms of operations, the biggest challenges that you find in European cities for the scooter operations? So in the past, it used to be first battery charging because, you know, the, the batteries were fixed in scooters. And so there was this huge operational challenge where you had to every day collect scooters, charge them, bring them back, which obviously was not efficient and not great from an environmental standpoint. Now with swappable batteries, it, frankly speaking, it has become extremely easy, very cheap, very efficient. We use only cargo e-bikes or, or electrical vans to, to run these operations. The second challenge now that it is solved in Europe was probably vandalism. You know, people, you know, throwing e-scooters in rivers or, or damaging them or doing uh, sort of things you know what we have seen is that this has reduced a lot and i think it's because at the beginning you get this kind of excitement oh you have this new toy let's destroy it or let's do something um, and i think now it, it's becoming part of the life of the people so basically it's boring it's a vehicle that they use on a daily basis it's not any more fun or something new to to break them plus on our side obviously we have improved a lot also the how strong or robust these vehicles are. We have applied a lot of data analysis, uh, you could call it AI if you like, if to really monitor where we should locate these scooters, reduce the risk, have people uh, 
intervene very quickly if we see that there is some kind of pattern that presents a risk. And, and so now uh, I would say vandalism in general is still an issue, but a very small issue. And how about the government rules and regulations in various cities mm. in Europe? What are you seeing in terms of your cost to comply with various rules? Has it been expensive? Are there fees that the government is charging you? Yeah. So first, I think overall regulation is good for shared micromobility and especially the right of cities to decide which operators can operate in their cities. The reason is because I think it's good for people in cities because it enables cities to select really the best operators and therefore, therefore offer the best shared micromobility service to people. And for operators, it's good also because once we have won, for instance, a tender, it really enables us to invest a lot safer in the city, knowing that we won't have too much of a crazy competition and that we know that we'll be uh, still be able to operate in one, two or three or, or more years, depending on the, the tender. Now, it's true that the, the regulation can also sometimes be bad, I think, for the development of the industry. When, for instance, the number of scooters are too, or, or e-bikes are too restrictive, then you can't offer good service to people because you don't reach the density of vehicles that you need to, to make it easily available. Or if they make the helmets compulsory, then suddenly, you know, much less people are keen to, to use the, or if the parking constraints are too restrictive, let's say you have a very big city, but you have only 20 parking spots that are where you are able to park. You know, it's not great because people can't really go uh, from A to B, you know, so, so it can be good. It can be bad, but I think overall, everyone, every city is learning, uh, I think from other cities, I think progressively uh, they, they see what works or not and it's improving. You mentioned earlier your IOT module and some of the technology mm. around smart parking and things. Uh, I know a number of companies are using technology in order to comply with rules, whether it's parking yeah. requirements or not riding on the sidewalk or the pavements or speed limits. How is DOT using technology to comply with these various rules like geofencing, speed and parking? Yeah, so, you know, I think there are, generally speaking, as you said, three problems that the cities uh, uh, try to address. One is making sure that the shared micromobility vehicles are always parked in the right location and not creating a mess. Then make sure that people ride them only on the streets or on the cycling paths where they are uh, authorized and not on the sidewalk. And three, you know, that they are, they are used, uh, I would say, on, on a safe way, maybe with a helmet or something. On the first problem, uh, that has been a big focus for, for uh, DOT. And so we have what we call a smart parking technology that uh, we use on the back end and everything to ensure that, uh, and which is mixed basically with very accurate uh, geolocalization technology developed in-house to, to make sure that people only park on these parking spots. So that's one. On sidewalk, we are studying this with multiple partners and startups. To be honest, I'm not 100% sure that it's a prime that can be totally solved. Uh, and to some extent, at some point, you have to rely on people also uh, driving these, these scooters or electrical bikes where they should. And the reason is that even if there's technologies that are pretty good leveraging what they call artificial intelligence to tell if you are on the, the street or on the sidewalk, there are still always a few percent of false positives, right? 
And so based on this false positive, the prime is what do you do with them? <laughs> and it's very hard as an operator to enforce, uh, even if you, uh, you can guess, let's say 95% if they are on the sidewalk or not, it's very hard to enforce this because of this false positive. And so, you know, I, I think we will find solutions, but I don't think that the industry overall is yet there. The third point about user safety and, and for instance, helmets. So as a few other operators, we have been testing and and doing pilots by offering a, a helmet box that are integrated on our uh, electrical scooters, meaning that the user can access to, to a helmet. We are not yet sure if it's a great thing. You know, first we are in times of COVID, so is it totally uh, safe? You know, it's a question mark. And then I still feel personally that the most important is to limit speed, which we are able to do depending on, on different zones, remotely based on geolocalization. And, and so far you limit speed. I, I don't think there's a big difference whether you wear a helmet or not. I mean, obviously it's a topic for debate. With respect to your smart parking, you mentioned geolocation and that you're mm. able to geolocate the scooter mm. within a small radius more than a regular GPS would be accurate. Are you using camera-based technology to do that? Or how are you improving the accuracy of the location when you're seeing if someone has parked the scooter correctly? Yeah, so no, we don't use cameras for that. We use, I mean, overall at high level, we use dead reckoning technology, which associated with, you know, I would say a fairly standard or improved, I would say, a GPS technology enables us to reduce the, the level of inaccuracy to 0.5 to 1 meter. And that's a satellite-based technology like GPS? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But dead reckoning is an addition where basically you use all the sensors that you have on the vehicles to complement basically the inaccuracy of the, the, the GPS. And then you mentioned sidewalk riding and some of the concerns around how to enforce riding with respect to geofencing. Mm -hmm. And it, it is an interesting problem. I mean, the technology providers that create this software can tell you information, as you point out, within a certain level of accuracy, but it seems like it's on the operator to decide what to do with that information and what <laughs> level of accuracy do you have to have before you're going to cut the speed on somebody's scooter, exactly, yeah. cut yeah. the motor, whatever. And there's certainly safety issues around that if they're in the middle of an intersection and suddenly you cut their power or something. I think if you think about cars, for instance, which are much more dangerous than electrical scooters that are limited at 20 or 25 kilometers per hour, I mean, we are not preventing the users or the drivers of cars to do anything stupid. You know, they can go at whatever speed they want. If they want to drive on the cycling lane, they can. If they want to pass a red light, they can. I think probably there should be some limitation, but, but the question is why are we so insistent that for a small vehicle that probably is not very risky for people and that is already limited in speed, we should develop such sophisticated technology just to prevent that basically people go on the sidewalk. My view is that at some point, you know, you have to also trust people. And especially if cities develop great cycling infrastructures, I think there will be really no incentive for people to be on the sidewalk. I think they will want to use the cycling 
lens, the same as for the bike, just because it's so much better and it's safer. You mentioned your swappable batteries and your changeover to using a swappable battery from a fixed battery. Are your batteries going to be interchangeable between the scooters and the bikes as well? Not at the beginning, but that's our goal eventually. It's a question of form factor in the end. And we thought uh, from a design perspective that it was more optimal to have a different form factor for the electrical bike and the electrical scooter. But, you know, I, I think that eventually we'll have the same battery design for both, but we'll see. I don't know yet. No. So for the scooters, how big are the batteries? Like how many rides do you typically get before they do need to be charged? It depends a bit on city configuration, but I would say you for us, we probably do between 12 to 15 rides or between each. And what have you seen with respect to battery technology? Do you envision in the future that battery life will get better? Obviously, the industry is still fairly young. Do you see there being technology improvements around that? So it might be disappointing, but I really think that so far there has not been any real innovation on, uh, on, on batteries. Everyone is using the same type of technology, ion lithium uh, cells. It's all the same cells. They all come from the same suppliers. There are some improvements, you know, I think in terms of how efficient you are at, at using the energy from these batteries and, and trans transforming them into power. But generally speaking, there has not been a, a ton of innovation. I think there are new technologies that are being developed. They are not yet, I think, mature enough, but I would say in the next two to five years, probably we'll, we'll see completely different battery technologies coming in. When you talk about the benefits of swappable batteries, as a number mm -hmm. of companies have moved to a swappable battery, it's usually compared to the alternative of having to pick up all the scooters and drive them yeah. to a warehouse and charge them. Is there also a third alternative, which would be to build out city infrastructure in the parking places where the scooters could charge instead of replacing the battery when it's dead, every time someone comes back and parks, it would be charging so that there would be kind of a more constant charging of the scooters. Is that something that you think about? Yeah, it's possible. The problem with these kind of infrastructures is they, they tend to be quite uh, costly and they are much less flexible. And I think the big advantage of swappable batteries is that you are not limited by the stations or or the recharging docks, and, and this is true also for people, meaning that uh, what do you do if you arrive at a station and, and, and there are no spots available? And so I think our model uh, right now, it, it seems to me at least, is the most optimal one in terms of optimizing availability and, and user experience. And in the same time, it's extremely cheap because we don't need to invest in any kind of infrastructures. The only cost is obviously the people that are doing these battery swaps. But for us, economically, the, the cost has gone so cheap that it, it's really not an issue anymore. And we prefer uh, really to have this flexibility. How are you looking at maintenance for your scooters? Are you using vehicle diagnostics or predictive maintenance or other technology to determine how to fix your scooters? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we use, so we have a self-diagnosis uh, tools, which tell us in a kind of proactive way uh, 
remotely if there's some kind of issue with the, the electrical scooter. And, and based on that, we are able to, depending on what kind of issue it is, basically to, to make the scooter unavailable and, and that they then get our, our teams to, to pick and collect. And, and then we have our own in-house mechanics that, that do the repairs. So it's a mix. It's a self-diagnosis. Then we have, you know, reports from users. We have also our own staff that every day swaps batteries. And so part of their process is to check every time they have a, a checklist. So they check the brake, they check a few uh, critical aspects of the electrical scooter. If they see something, they take the scooter with them. And then every few hundred rides, basically, uh, we, we have uh, same as for cars, basically, we bring it back to the warehouse for a full in-depth maintenance and maybe change the brakes or something. Are you thinking about other form factors besides e-bikes and kick scooters? Right now, we are very focused on the e-bike in addition to the electrical scooter. But yes, we, we think that there might be more form factors that could be interesting for people. So far, our goal is to, you know, to get as many people as possible to use micro-mobility vehicles. So if we see that there are new form factors that are of interest for a significant portion of the population, uh, then we might uh, want to operate them as well. And would that include like an e-moped? Yeah, I mean, e-mopeds, there are a few of our competitors that have started uh, to operate some of them. It's an interesting one. The, the e-mopeds, the cost is, is I mean, has reduced, but it's still quite high. And compared to an electrical scooter, you are talking, including batteries, uh, maybe a factor of eight times more expensive or something like that. So when you know that the price that you can charge is fairly similar to electrical scooters, electrical bikes, it makes it a lot harder to, to, to get a positive return on, on investment. And the question is then also like, is an electrical moped offering so much higher value for the people than an electrical scooter and electrical bike. My belief is not that much, but then it depends a bit also on city configuration. So if for instance, you have, you don't have much cycling lanes, then electrical mopeds might become a safer way to move around because you, you can go at a higher speed. You can go on the main road and, and then maybe it, may, it makes more sense for people. And what about other business models? I know some companies, especially with an e-bike, have thought about a subscription model rather than a dockless rental on the sidewalk where you would pay a certain fee per month and you would mm -hmm. get some maintenance and you basically keep it at your house. I know there's a stronger owned culture in Europe for e-bikes. Yeah, I think in the end, uh, we are part of the ecosystem. And I think, you know, uh, overall goal is to get more people to use a uh, micro mobility vehicles in general. Some will have their own private bike. Some will uh, lease it on a monthly basis and some will use it on demand as what we are offering right now. And I think every model will be successful. I think the market will grow for everyone. When it comes to, let's call it long-term leasing. So let's say lease on a monthly basis. Or on a weekly basis. We think it's a different business because the, the question is much more like a question of financing. So who do you trust enough, I would say, to, to give, to offer a leasing contract with the risk of theft and everything. And so we think that right now it is not our core strength, uh, this aspect and there are companies, uh, other companies that do it a lot better. The second aspect is that leasing 
we think that the return on investment that you can get is lower than in shared micro-mobility. And the reason is because, you know, let's say with an electrical scooter, you do, uh, let's say, five rides a day. Let's say it's uh, let's say in US dollars, so three US dollars every time. So, you know, you do 15 US dollars per, uh, per day. That means that if you really operate it every day of the month, you know, you, you can do uh, in total $450 per electrical scooter per month. If you rent it, you know, maybe you can rent it for 50 US a month, but probably not a lot more. So the time to get the return is, is vastly higher. And so right now we see a bigger opportunity in, in shared micro-mobility. What does 2021 look like for DOT? What do you anticipate in the next year or so in terms of your plans and recovering from the impact of the COVID pandemic? Yeah, first priority is to, uh, to launch the e-bike and to add uh, the e-bikes to our e-scooter offer in the cities where we operate. Two, it's to grow in the cities where we operate. So we want to make a bigger difference in the cities where we are. And then in a careful way, we are going to continue to expand, really targeting first cities, uh, big cities, suburban cities that are around the cities where we operate, and potentially a few cities that are, that are launching tenders this year in, in, in Europe, such as uh, London, which is ongoing right now, Dublin, uh, maybe Oslo, Barcelona, and other cities. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks again to Maxime for joining us. You can find the show notes for this episode on our Substack publication, smartercars.substack.com. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.